The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. What makes us take up causes others think are impossible? What draws others to the cause, bonds us together, and gives us an inexhaustible energy and an unwavering belief that we'll succeed? I'll draw on my own experiences and talk to fellow champions about the successes, setbacks, and team dynamics that move causes forward. I'm Marvin Stockwell, and welcome to Champions of the Lost Causes podcast. On the show today, Todd Richardson. Todd saw a blighted Sears distribution center and asked questions that started with, wouldn't it be cool if... He kept asking them and drew others to ask them too, but he had to face questions from doubters like, are you crazy? That will never happen. But champions of seemingly lost causes become convinced, despite doubts, that something transformative is not only possible, but that it surely will happen. Their conviction is inviolable and bulletproof. Seven years later, and that old abandoned building became Crosstown Concourse, a vertical urban village dedicated to healthcare, education, and the arts, a conglomeration of nonprofits plus retail, residential, and a high school. I talked to Todd about the journey from germ of an idea to opening day and to the future. And we talk about the setbacks too. A champion's path is never a straight line, but the fits and starts teach us things we wouldn't learn any other way. All that coming up on Champions of the Lost Causes. Todd Richardson, thanks so much for being on Champions of the Lost Causes. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So for those who uh, maybe don't know about Crosstown Concourse, just broadest strokes, what was Sears Crosstown and what is Crosstown Concourse? We'll get to the journey of how it became uh, the other in a second. First of all, if you haven't been here, please come. Uh, There's a lot to do for those who... Sometimes people think if they don't live here or work here or go to school here that there's nothing here for them. But there are 10 restaurants oh, right. and uh, all sorts of other things to do sure. when you're here. So please come. Um, Sears uh, Crosstown was a distribution center uh, built in 1927. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the day, uh, you and I remember it. Um, if you ordered anything from the Sears catalog uh, and you lived in Louisiana, Arkansas, Alabama, Mississippi, or Tennessee, it came from this building. Right. It was the Amazon before Amazon, and the Sears catalog was our internet. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so it was a retail store. It was Southeastern Regional Offices and then a million square feet of warehouse that had um, stored all those goods um, Mm -hmm. that were then taken and, um, and delivered. Or picked up, for that matter. So, uh, all, all great until uh, 1983, Sears uh, retail store closed. 1993, the building as a whole shut down. So, by the time we got started in uh, 2010, it had been mm-hmm. you know, almost, almost 20 years, um, then empty. So, the Crosstown neighborhood grew up around the building. There were 1,500 people that worked here. They, uh, they um, handled 45,000 orders a day. Uh, and and so as a result, the community grew up. There was a uh, uh, lots of restaurants and stuff on in in the the cross crosstown theater just down mm-hmm. the street. Yeah. Uh, but then when you take all that business uh, away from the area, then it had an equally negative uh, impact. Yeah. And so you know within ten years, basically every building across the street from 
from uh, Sears Crosstown at the time was was empty. Oh, I remember that time. Yeah. It was like they somebody just turned the lights out on this yeah, part of town. Exactly. Um, and so it it, it spiraled uh, disinvested community. Um, and so uh, when we got started, that was really the point of departure. Was yes, it was about a building, uh, which was essentially a kind of canvas. Um, but it was really about people and it was about bringing people back to this area. Mm-hmm. Um, the neighborhood had just kind of fallen off the mental map of most Memphians. You know, back in 2010, yeah. if you had asked a thousand Memphians where the Crosstown neighborhood is, yeah. most wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be able to tell you. Right. Um, Even the word Crosstown had right. fallen out of our collective lexicon. Correct. Yeah. And so if, if people didn't know it, it was Sears Crosstown, but not as a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a building. And so, um, really, the point of departure for the for finding a vision for this place was: sure, we could try to turn it into an office park that was occupied nine to five, Monday through Friday, but that is really not the highest and best use for the neighborhood. Right. So it was: how can we get as many he- people here as possible? Yeah. You know, twenty four hours a day, three hundred sixty five days a year, and that's what drove the. Well, let's create a whole new neighborhood. And, yeah. Um, and so, you know, kind of from distribution center to to community hub. Yeah. And it's like, it, and, and for people listening, especially if you're in the Memphis area, it's, it's like, I still run into people who haven't quite, quite gotten down here to check it out. Yeah. And of course, I'm a huge advocate for the I mean, probably for the, for 90% the of Memphis has never been down here, um, which is crazy. Oh, gosh. I don't want to think that that's right, but that's probably that right. That's true. Uh, yeah. But well, they've, they've got a real gem to explore. Yeah. Uh, in some of the writing that I've done, I, I describe the, the the finding of our of our cause. So, so um, for me, it's it's working on things related to the Mid South Coliseum and the fairgrounds. Mm-hmm. And when you arrive on that scene, or for you to size up and go, "Huh, what what would be really cool is if we, yeah. you know?" And so I describe it as almost like arriving on a desert island where or a deserted island where you're just like what might we find? There's this kind of exhilarating feeling of like the, that. What if, mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about how you moved from that kind of like, what if to talk, having those first conversations, how long did it live in your head? Uh, and you had an interior conversation and then who did you explain about like, you know, like those first few conversations and then how that gelled into a team of people who picked up and championed this idea. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, I, you know, our, our version of that was, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, wouldn't yeah. it be cool if, wouldn't it be cool if, um, and I came at it from the arts side mm-hmm. specifically. So I moved to Memphis in 2008 to be an art history professor at the university of Memphis. And, um, and then the first conversation about this project happened exactly one year later in August of 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I lived in California for four years, lived in the Netherlands, uh, just outside of Amsterdam for five mm-hmm. years. And just through the travels had seen um, nothing this large, but a number of kind of large scale industrial areas that had been, uh, you know, renovated, recaptured using the arts as the spark. Mm. You could argue it's the story of Manhattan in terms of how things right. you know, move around in terms of neighborhoods to move to um, a studio space. You know, artists like cheap things or cheap space and a coffee shop moves in, sure. some apartments move in. And um, it's it's that story is not unique to this place. Uh, right. it, it happens uh, in a lot of places. And so for me, um, I just began sharing, you know, stories like Mass Mocha, Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art um, in North Adams, where it was a Mm -hmm. 750,000 square foot former um, spark plug plant that's now a contemporary art center with a lot of other things going on. 
Um, and at the time, um, there was also something called the Center for Creative Community Development at Williams College. I don't think it exists mm-hmm. anymore, but they had done a number of case studies on cultural center- centers in urban areas. Mm. Um, and they quantified things of, you know, property values, impact on property values, um, levels of education, quality of life, such that we could begin to look at this not simply as just a civic or altruistic thing, but something that made sense um, economically and civically for the, for the city. And so it was probably, gosh, after that first conversation, I didn't sleep for about three weeks. Uh, the funny thing is I'd gotten a, um, a fellowship at university of Tennessee and that I mm-hmm. was supposed to spend the month of August there finishing a book I was writing uh-huh. on a artist named Peter Bruegel, the elder. And, um, and instead I wrote a white paper on this, uh, for oh, that wow. fellowship. So, it's, so it just mm, consumed you. It consumed me. Um, and so I worked on it for that fall yeah. semester and then, um, we began to really think about, okay, well, all of these other case studies, this is, this, this, these things mm-hmm. could actually happen in Memphis. Now, mm-hmm. obviously the arts was never, it was never the intent that the arts would take up the entire building, mm-hmm. but it could be the spark. And, um, and so that's when we put together the feasibility, uh, study team, mm-hmm. um, in spring of 2010 and Chris Miner mm-hmm. and. Um, Tony Bologna and Amy Karkuff and a few others, um, Scott yeah. Boyko and uh, Doug Carpenter. And so it was an engineer, it was an architect, somebody in um, marketing communications, a mm-hmm. developer. Mm-hmm. And we just gave ourselves a year. You know, can anything happen with the building? Number one. Mm-hmm. And number two, if so, what? Yeah, you know that it's funny that that kind of early exhilaration. It's like it's like it's so captivating that it's like like you can't even control. It's it's hard to control. Yeah. It's like uh, and and just in, in my own experience, that that the earliest of early days with the Coliseum, of course, there was a threat to just to demolish the building. But it almost like uh, it, it's just there's a certain rush involved. Was that interior conversation with yourself uh, early on? Was it about was it about um, the the what if? How long did you keep it inside in between your ears before you told the first person? And who was that first person? Was it Chris? Or do you remember, or was it yeah. a group of folks? You know, it's funny. Um, uh, the first conversation that I had was driving to Knoxville, mm-hmm. six-hour drive. I called Chris Miner yeah. and said, there's this crazy thing, that uh, the crazy idea. I just need to talk it out with somebody. And we spent the entire drive from Memphis to Knoxville talking it out. Wow. Yeah. Because that was like six or so hours. Um there's a um, there's a coworker of mine at, at, at St. Jude who, like every once in a while, kind of asked me for an update about <clears throat> how things with the Coliseum, and and a lot of times, like half dismissively and half to just bust my chops, he'll kind of roll his eyes and say something like, "Oh, you care so much about the community," and I think he means that to to, to give me grief, but also as a, as a compliment. But talk a bit about because I think you mentioned the word altruism hmm. so a lot of times and I would bet people pat you on the back and it's a well-deserved pat on the back to say thank you for doing this for the community mm-hmm. uh, and, and but in my own experience of working on a cause it's not just altruism that drive or, or community impact to from to me and I would love to know if this is your experience and, and how it manifests itself there's a let's let's see how far we can press this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it, was yeah. that part of the kind of 
I, it's it's funny you say that because I do actually all, uh, fairly often people will say thank you you know for all the work that you did to make this happen and I'm yeah my and I say it to them I was like don't thank me this is this is the most selfish thing that I could have possibly done <laughs> and they're like what do you mean and I'm like we have created a a, a wonderful community yeah. here. Um, my family and I get to live here. My daughter gets to go down the stairs to a great high school. Yeah. My office is on the yeah. second grade. My kids have more freedom here than they do they would in any neighborhood because yeah. my 10-year-old leaves by herself to go to the grocery store or the ice cream shop or, yeah. or whatever. And so um, it, 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 it really is has been something where you I haven't minded um, eating my own cooking, I guess yeah. you could say. Um, and so... I think if you have a vision for something um, and it's a, it's a vision that you think would make things better and you live into that, it, it's really about, uh, it's not just altruism, it's making a place better for everybody, but uh, yeah. you are a part of that everybody. And it's also fun doing it. I don't Like I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't because you do it as 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 volunteers, at least in the early days. Right. I mean, maybe eventually a cause spins out a staff position of some sort. But like in the early days, it's just you're surviving on your wits and adrenaline and and, and passion and enthusiasm. So um, it's like we wouldn't do it if it weren't fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, But um, I was going to ask you, um, you know, as a team of people championing an idea takes shape, it's interesting how the right mix of gifts, abilities and personalities align, you know, almost automatically. And I was wondering how that came about. It was that it, more intentional for, for, for us, it seems to me almost happenstantial, but it's almost like the needs you need, you magnetize to yourself. And all of a sudden you find yourself, Oh, there's a person that's good with spreadsheets. So here's a good guy that's good on television. Now here's a guy who's, who's an architect like that team kind of like, like materializes out of the ether. Yeah. And I wonder what your thoughts were on that. And just, and this not to get too mystical, but like, just to speculate on like, what, what is that animating force? Um, for us, it was, it was, you know, I can only speak from my own experience. And for us, it was very specific. And mm-hmm. um, that is at pretty much the same time that Chris and I had started Crosstown Arts and, and mm-hmm. started this working on this project, the group of Tony Bologna, um, Amy Karkoff, Scott Boyko, and Anna Holtzclaw had their, had a development group. And again, this is middle of the recession, right? And mm-hmm. so uh, nobody's doing anything when it comes to, or not, or very little anyway, when it comes to development. Mm-hmm. And so their group had gotten together and, and said, you know, well, during this time, let's, let's take the time we have to dream about other uh, buildings that we would love to see, you know, renovated or repurposed in Memphis. And so they made the list of some of the ones that you would expect, Sterrick Building, Sears Crosstown, uh, 100 North Main, you know, et cetera. And so um, they had contacted the owner not too long after um, he and I had had our first conversations mm-hmm. uh, about the possibility of of looking at some of the documents, you know, related to the building. And so mm-hmm. that we, we providentially serendipitously, whatever you want to say, we came together um, at, at, at the right at all. We came together at the, at the same time, but they had started their process separately from us. And it just so happened we were doing it at the same mm-hmm. time and we got connected. Um, so, right. Yeah. 
you know, it, it, it's and, and maybe we want to see connection, but it is it is interesting. Like uh, that stuff just happened to fall together. Conveniently. Well, and, and I always say there were this this, we, you know, we are anybody who knows anything about Crosstown knows it, it, it was a miracle. I mean, nobody can take credit for this, you know, and if you ask most Memphians who made it happen, nobody would be able to tell you. It's not like there was a, a specific developer who, you know, made it. It was a team of people yeah. um, who did it, plus the, the founding partners, <coughs> Church Health and St. Jude sure. and Methodist. And they, they take a lot of the, they, sh- they, they should take a lot of the credit mm-hmm. in terms of making it happen. But um, it was also the recession. And so people were actually trying to figure out how to be more resourceful and how to be more efficient such that the yeah. idea of better together actually resonated. Oh yeah. Um, and it was not a great time to try to get a bank loan, but in terms of, you know, uh, the, the, the other thing is, is construction costs that um, we got our pricing, you know, in the recession. And had we oh, waited yeah. just a year later, pricing would have gone up 20%. And this project just based on what you can charge market rents wouldn't be feasible. And mm. so the fact that it happened in the middle of the recession where we got that pricing was another providential component yeah. that, that factored into the to the miracle. So there were a number of things from, oh, from really financing cool. yeah. to the team to the tenants, um, to even uh, with the city, you know, and working with yeah. the city and the county. The funding sources, a major funding source was qualified energy conservation bonds, which, which then were yeah. um, cut the next year. So it, it's it, you could go on and on and on uh, in terms of just it was a perfect storm for this project. Yeah, you kind of have to just be in awe about it because you can you can yeah. know you have abilities, even even gifts. Uh, but that was that was talent wed to uh, opportunity to and 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 I think in in the in the video, uh, uh, Mayor Wharton talks about it. So it had to all the green lights had to go. I, I love that analogy yeah. because red light, red light, red light, red light, red light. Yeah. That still yeah. resonates with me. That's that's amazing, and as as a, as a fan of the project, um, uh, but it also speaks to the fact that like, um, oh, and I'm going to forget the like famous quote where they say, "If you can, if you can think it, begin it," mm. you know, and it's 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 almost like uh, all these unseen forces will will somehow like magnetize or gather in alignment, uh, and that's certainly what happened here in a way that I think. Uh, uh, buoys up all of Memphis, quite frankly. Uh, what's 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 funny is uh, uh, Crosstown Concourse. Uh, now, now Memphis has an even wider litany of winds. Mm. Uh, Absolutely, New Face Fernal Broad giving rise to to to, to Broad Avenue, yep. Claiborne Temple, uh, the Chiska Hotel, Overton uh, Square, uh, Overton Park, uh, the Levitt Shell. I mean, if you go back yep. a little bit farther, so Shelby but, Farms, Shelby Farms Park. So indeed. Um, but um, and and those are all different varieties. Some were more developer led, the moments of more of a, a slow burn, kind of like a, a, a more you know grassroots led. Mm-hmm. Uh, but regardless of the mechanism and the speed, uh, there is this wider litany of winds that Memphis is rattling off. And I certainly think uh, that Crosstown Concourse is probably one of the best examples, biggest examples, most astounding examples. Because when because um, when we're given VIP tours of of the Mid South Coliseum uh, to potential investors, or 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 we're having a volunteer cleanup, which we've done a couple of, people will often cite. They'll say, "I know this building can have a future because if we can do Crosstown Concourse, <laughs> right. it's it's like everybody come up comes up with the same. It's the it's the it's the easiest thing to point to and say, well, that was a way heavier lift than right. the Coliseum would be.'" Uh, but I think it's it's just a wonderful example of 
Uh, if Memphis, broadly speaking, can pull what we're sitting in inside off, what can't we do? It, right. it, it seems to be a a a a a time of uh, wide open possibilities. I agree. Uh, when, in Memphis, when people ask me, you know, what are you what are you most proud of, and and I, immediately it is. Again, like you said, it wasn't just concourse. There were a number of things, but but I say we were a part of changing the psychology of Memphis, and that is just what you Absolutely. described yeah. of, of 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 really believing that things are yeah. possible. Um, which is one reason why back in 2010, 2011, we had spent a couple of years working on the project. Nobody knew because mm. we didn't want to come out of the gates um, saying sure. you know that this was going to happen, and then it not happen as has happened so many times yeah. uh, before then. So we actually waited until August of 2012 to announce when we had right. already the founding partners on board and committed, which then brought credibility to the project. Sure. You know, like a lot of times uh, somebody will complain like, oh, gosh, why didn't our civic you know, leaders at the time realize this? And I, I have a, cert, uh, a lot of sympathy, actually, when you think about, you know, uh, in 2006, essentially, is when they decided to close the Mid-South Coliseum. There were lots of environmental uh, factors that, that said that's probably the best idea. It wasn't ADA compliant. Uh, we had a brand new FedEx forum. So when I look at that, I think to myself, had I been making decisions back then, a- another thing, uh, it, it, Memphis's civic optimism was, was at a low ebb right. in 06, you know, like, or, or 05, 06, that period. Mm-hmm. So like around 2009, you start to germinate on this idea. Um, I, I, I just think now we have a wider wind in our civic sails that are that that's pushing us forward now it's not a matter of i feel like memphians even pes- previously pessimistic ones or even people who persist in generally being pessimistic are have no choice but to say um what else is possible in memphis i think it's, i think there's a growing almost expectation um that uh i was in a restaurant Oh, this was maybe six months ago. And I didn't, I didn't overhear even the whole sentence, but I heard somebody say, Oh yeah, that's the next area of town. That's going to surge back to life. Mm-hmm. And that's it's like, thing. as if that's a thing, like, right, right. like, Oh, of course. Well, sure. That's going to be a yeah. thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I just think it wasn't too long ago where the, the, per, the perception was that'll never happen because this yeah. is Memphis and Memphis never gets anything right. Right. And now we're on a, on this great tear. Let me turn to uh, the subject of learning from ad- ad- adversity a bit. You know, no NBA team goes 82 and, and zero, right? Yep. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about some setbacks uh, and what you learn from it? Because you and I both know uh, setbacks uh, and even maybe hard to swallow losses mm-hmm. teach us stuff that we can't uh, learn any other way. But sure. what were some kind of the signature, you know, yeah. losses that or setbacks? Um, I, I would say a couple of things that come immediately to mind. Um, one is that, uh, we, we lost some founding tenants, right? So there were originally nine, uh, founding partners that had committed to the project. Right. Um, one of those West clinic and, and they, um, had, uh, partnered with Methodist and were going to expand their footprint. Um, and for a Mm -hmm. lot of different factors, um, 
they decided to uh, do that at Methodist University uh, there at their headquarters yeah. there, mm-hmm. or Methodist headquarters there. And so um, we lost them as a founding partner, which at the time was a big deal. Um, you know, they, I can't remember. I think it was 40,000 square feet or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. at the time, that was a really big deal. And then not too long after that, um, we our original partner for the high school was Gestalt Community Schools. Right. And, um, and for... Also, very you know, well thought out and reasonable reasons. They decided that they were going to um, focus on some of the new schools that they had just opened, mm-hmm. um, and so that didn't happen. And so we were like, okay, well, we're still going to move forward in designing space for the school and designing the the site for you know, yeah. drop off and pick up and pick up pick up and all those things. We didn't know how the high school was going to happen, but we just had to move forward in faith that um, that that it would. Uh, so thank I goodness think for Luke, Ginger Spickler, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> And, yeah. Mary and my daughter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And speaking yeah. of, of epiphanies um, and, and her story with the school is wonderful. She was episode one. Oh, Ginger great. was. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I didn't realize So for that. those listening, go back yes, and listen to Ginger's listen. story. Episode That's a one. fantastic yeah. story. It's a great story. Yeah. Um, so that was one. Just, you know, when you mm-hmm. had large, large tenants, you, you were teetering on the edge of, po- of, of, of possibility in the first place. Um, fortunately mm-hmm. we, we, um, not too long after that had new tenants that took their place. And so that was great. Um, the other was when we first, even, even with the, um, with the, uh, recession era construction numbers, we still had to, the first, uh, bids that came back, we had to cut $33 million out of the budget. Oh, <laughs> so, um, imagine that, you know, uh, now Yikes. it's a $200 million project. So, um, the, the initial bids were, 230 and so we had to not just cut some fingers we had to cut some you know um, yeah. some appendages <laughs> oh wow in terms but the, the the bright side of that is you know having a budget helps you know and and sure. you make better design decisions you know right. and so we i think we actually ended up with a better building and better flow and um and and a, a better space ha- as a result of some of those cuts, but at the time it sure was hard, yeah, know, to do. Um, let's see what else. You know, just the 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 amount of I, I, it's not necessarily setback, but just the the complexity, you know, of it all. The mm-hmm. the thirty sources of funding, uh, number one. Um, and then it being such a public project, not just because yeah. of the scale of it, but also because of the city and county funding and um, and, and city council approval and working with uh, city council members and county commissioners and and both mayors. Um, and a bit of the lingering perception of impossibility. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, I this mean, has become the proof point. Yeah, we were under construction and people yeah. were still saying it's never going to happen. I remember, yeah. It's going <laughs> to come in way over budget or it's never going to be on time. You know, all it, it just keeps yeah. going. Um, so I think the complexity of it and, and that never, we actually had a, uh, mm-hmm. a third party consultant come in and before we started construction and do a risk assessment. And they came back and said, your biggest risk is communication, that when you change, when you make a decision and you change something and then just making sure that that gets the the domino effect happens and everyone Mm -hmm. else is informed Mm -hmm. because you've got so many different constituents, you know, that are here uh, and, you know, 1200 people on site doing construction, that communication would, would be your biggest risk. And so 
again, just the complexity of it was learning how to communicate, learning how to say the same things over and over and over again, and not just expect that they got parlayed. Right. Um, and you know, over time, like your first setback probably kind of rocks you back on your heels a bit. Uh, but in my experience, a lot of times initial setbacks, like when you analyze them years later, it, it did you find that like, um, setbacks early on, uh, kind of made you tougher for setbacks that came later on or was it, or did it toughen you up? Oh, sure. Um, I think it, it, um, the first thing it did is it, uh, solidified our team, you know, because then mm. we had to work more closely together to figure it out. Uh, and so the, I, I just can't say you dig down deeper about the development team uh-huh. and the design team and just how, I mean, it's not to say that we didn't have our disagreements, um, but, but mm-hmm. just how arm in arm, you know, we were, you know, throughout, you know, from, from conception to construction completion and some of those complexities and some of those setbacks, you know, forced that where we had to get in a room with each other and go, okay, this happened. It is what it is. You know, what are we going to do? And, and, yeah. and so it brings you together on that. But yeah, certainly. And I think, I think more than anything, it just makes you wiser, you know, as those sure. things continue to happen, whether with this project or just in life in general, you, it's not that you just take it in stride, but you, you kind of learn to take it in stride and, and know that these things are always going to come up and right. um, you just got to pivot and be willing to pivot and, and know that um, to some, if you, if you pivot well, it can lead to an evolution that's better than what you expected mm-hmm. in the first place. Once you have that really strong team and you've, you've, and, and, and the, the challenge like knit you together stronger, um, talk a bit about like, um, uh, how do I want to phrase this? Um, it almost like um, it when you reach kind of. I, I've heard you say before. Um, uh, when I at the outset of this, I told somebody I'm not interested in something if it's going to take five years. Now, of course, it took you seven, right? Am I right well, in saying that? I or mean, maybe I guess yeah. you could say it's ongoing. Yeah, no, it, it still, took, is, took seven. Yeah, I, I yeah. remember saying to somebody I can't remember was um, that. You know, we'll give it two years. And, oh, two. two. You started it with even five. Two. That was your early I was like, God, I mean, I was a professor. I was happy. You know, that was the other thing is that I, this was not an ego thing, you know, yeah. for me in the sense that I was completely happy being a professor. And if, yeah. I'm, we were going to make our best effort. But if it didn't work, you know, I'm happy teaching. Um, sure. And, you know, to a certain degree, McLean Wilson was the same way. And he had yeah. projects. And uh, so we would give it our best effort. And so you, you just go day to day. Um, but yeah, Sorry. once do, I was going to say when you reach that kind of like, uh, midway point, almost it becomes a strength where you say we've come too far to turn back now. Yeah. Is, is, is yeah. that, was that an ally for you? That kind of like feeling of like, we got this team knitted together. We've come too far. This is too awesome. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that, that, that played out more, during the financing year. So 2014 Mm. was basically our year of culling together the new markets tax credits and the historic tax credits and the city funding and the county Mm -hmm. funding and all of those things. And, you know, for about six months, McLean and I were on a conference call, a weekly conference call with 55 attorneys. Think about that. For six months, once a week, we were on a conference call with 55 attorneys. That's crazy. 
And That's crazy. It's crazy. And that I'm an art history <laughs> professor doing it. But anyway. Um, Doesn't make any sense. And, and there were moments in, on those calls where you think, for no good reason, this is going to fall apart. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's when you, 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 you just put your foot down and say, damn it, this is going to happen. The, the yeah. complexity of this is not going to derail all of the work that has gone into this thus far because we just believe that in it so much. I mean, it's another thing if there's good reason for something to be derailed, but just the complexity of it for mm-hmm. no, you know, and, and, and those calls and, and, and really, People wanting to make decisions out of nothing but fear, you know, thinking mm, about the right. worst case scenario and, well, we can't do this because of this worst case scenario that has a 1% chance of happening. That's when you just go, no, no, that this is not going to happen. We're, we're, we have to move forward. And, and you just, you just try to motivate people to see beyond what they see. And that's the hardest thing. Yeah, I was going to say that. So at that point, is is you really have to remind people the the like the, the thing to be striving the, toward. Yeah, that's exactly right. The, the 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 vision and what we've accomplished so far, reminding people of the of the miracle that's already taken place, yeah. and to uh, not not stand in the way of that happening for for something that's that's a minuscule, uh, you know, chance yeah. of happening. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like your conviction about the ultimate reality that you're pursuing becomes like bulletproof and you you like you reach that level of you will not be denied right you know that's 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 amazing i guess it takes that tenacity and that vision and then it's from that zeal that you're able to paint this picture that even people who are very you know uh nose in a spreadsheet you know uh dollars and cents people can catch that vision you kind of have to map it out and really show them yeah uh and do the hard work um Talk a little bit about um, as you've gone on. I know in the early, you're, you're t- the way you sell a thing, like your story is constantly changing. Mm. And one thing that we that, that I've noticed recently is like in the early days, you, you have to add. Well, you know, this building has has promised. The, the Mid South Coliseum has promised, and people, yeah, maybe they do, maybe they. Do. But once public sentiment changes, and now that the that the city is actually included in its planning process, and we're working more in lockstep with them. We've had to revise the way we talk about the Coliseum because like we, we, we don't need we no longer need to start at the beginning or even here. Uh, we'll say we'll mention something about the Coliseum and people will will stop us and go, yeah, yeah. Wh- when is that reopening? And a lot of times they'll cite Crosstown mm. Concourse because they're mm. like, yep, absolutely. Coliseum's awesome. You know, like uh, if we do Crosstown yeah. Concourse, we could do that. Um, but just talk to me about how your 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 narrative changed. And, and I guess maybe. You, you all were dealing with with harsher headwinds of, of doubt, really, than a modern project is, quite frankly. So because because I remember just personally uh, um, uh, having worked at Church Health, I remember talking to somebody literally a month before opening day <laughs> and the person said, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, I work in the building now. <laughs> so so maybe. But but it's. um. But but obviously now you're in the era of operation, yes. uh, yeah. Uh, and that's an entirely different thing. So in one sense, uh, you know, y- you got there, you broke the tape. Opening day has happened. But but if you could maybe just talk, spend a little bit of time just talking about 
I think you've said something in, in effect where you say opening day is not the finish line. Right, it's right. a starting gun or something to that effect. But what, yeah. what looking forward, what's, what is Crosstown, what does Crosstown Concourse still need to deliver on in your, yeah. in your view? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah. McLean and I would always say, you know, um, success is not groundbreaking. Success is not opening day. It's 10 years from now when, you know, tenants in the building, residents in the building are mm-hmm. renewing their leases because they love being here. When, yeah. when Concourse has had the intended right kind of impact on the neighborhood as, as a whole. And because at the end of the day, we, this thing has to be sustainable. You know, we're mm-hmm. 98% leased right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it is certainly sustainable. Um, but that has, that takes just continued work every, every day. Um, so it's really now it's less about, you know, um, wouldn't it be cool if, although that still happens programmatically and all the events mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. that are happening across town arts specifically. Um, but it is more about how can things get better? You know, so you, yeah. you, you, you've started and, and you've established a foundation, you've established right. an expectation You've established a place that people in general, I think, I hope, uh, love being uh, and love exploring. Um, And so now, how do you keep it fresh? How do you keep it continually getting better? Creating the community of people that operate it. Um, in a, in a way that it that has the the hospitality and the the, the welcoming and um, the openness that that we hope you know, right. that it would have. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the theater hasn't been open really that Spring. long, six months or Spring. something like not, that. Yeah, not even. So, like, there's plenty more to develop there. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone who drives around the building. I, you know, has a thought about like what's going to happen with the mound with a with that, yep. that neighborhood, and, yep. and and I have to think that like with it being in such close proximity, uh, and I'm not trying to get you to go into something that maybe it, plans are are underway, but it's just like I know a lot of people are have high hopes also for how the economic vitality of this building also will will radiate out That's to right. the neighborhood because we talked a bit about in the early days how the the, the neighborhood was desolate. And surely, you know, like you can look at those set of retail, you know, Black Lodge videos there. Right, like, right. so it has magnetized uh, businesses to the area. But, but um, what, what are your, what are your kind of wildest hopes for where this, where this could be, this neighborhood could be in mm. say 20 years? Yeah. Well, I think, I think that, you know, so there are 3000 people coming and going from the building mm-hmm. every day. And thanks to um, our tenants who, have, you know, some of the most diverse workforces, you know, mm-hmm. the city Methodist and St. Jude and others, sure. um, church health, yep. uh, and the, and to the patients and, 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 um, folks who are coming to church health and YMCA, mm-hmm. it's a really diverse group yeah. of people that, so when you come yeah. here, you, you, everybody sees people like them, right. Um, whether that's racially, generationally, uh, economically, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So my, this is an academic answer, right? So my hope is that concourse would become a kind of microcosm of the city mm-hmm. such that it can be a place where, where people experiment with things, whether, and, and, and take some of those hard questions like healthcare and transportation and financial literacy and uh, et cetera, and, and experiment here in concourse and because you have such a diverse population that's represented here yeah. and captured, you know, they're captured is the wrong word, but they're here every day. They're working sure. here, going to school here, living here. Um, 
that if it's successful at concourse, it could actually be successful, you know, citywide. Yeah. And so thinking of it as a place for case studies in that sense, um, mm-hmm. that, get, that gets me really excited about yeah. um, how you might try things on a smaller scale, but because of the diverse population, if it's successful here, it has a chance to be successful on a larger scale. Um, right. And then in terms of the neighborhood as a whole, uh, again, we knew that if you, we made a building successful and nothing happened across the street, mm-hmm. kind of what's the point? And mm-hmm. so that's why out of 1.2 million square feet, we only have 60,000 square feet of retail because we wanted just enough, a pharmacy, you know, yeah. uh, um, a few restaurants, coffee, ice cream, but we wanted people to kind of get tired of what's here and then to want to go across the street yeah. so, so that all of those uh, spaces across the street would be filled. Um, and so that's now that people are here, we're starting to see that that happening. Yeah. Um, and to residential, you know, people are looking in the Crosstown neighborhood in a way that they never had before in terms of moving or buying a house, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. So I think that's that's a really important point, particularly given everything that's happening with St. Jude. So, you yeah. know, that area between Crosstown and St. Jude is, um, and then just on the south side of that area is Methodist Labonner. So, um, right. really um, kind of knitting together, you know, those anchors as in, as in Memphis 3.0. Yeah. And I guess, honestly, the, the thing that Memphis needs to, in my view, needs to keep elevated is obviously the equity conversation. Yeah, such absolutely. That, such that we can say, how do we leverage the, the, the true momentum that is happening in Memphis and make mm-hmm. sure that people uh, benefit uh, that that all Memphians benefit. Yep. Um, is there anything like that? That's all. Those are the only questions I had. But is there anything maybe I didn't uh, think to to ask about that you'd want to weigh in on? Um, you know, people will say, and they're right. Crosstown happened because Todd didn't know it wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. And y- another way to say that is ignorance is bliss, or however. And and I think. If there's some, if there's any kind of message, I would have to say is there were plenty of times where I was speaking in front of people or advocating for something, and um, people looked at me as if I had a third eye, and mm-hmm. and there were moments where it could have even been embarrassing, you know, um, that you're you're sticking up for a vision that really you have no business having. Mm-hmm. If you feel that way it kind of means you're going in the right direction. Yeah. And, but for so many people who have a vision, um, they encounter this contrarian, more mainstream opinion mm-hmm. and feel like they're crazy, you know, um, or out of it. Now, if you continue to get that and for good reason, you know, I'm not sure. saying that, 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 um, that can't happen, but, I guess what I am saying is if you, if you get to that point, then it means you're, you're swimming against the stream and to mm-hmm. do something different, you have to. Um, because when it comes to development, one thing I have realized is that the, the mechanisms of development are there to de-risk, right? So mm-hmm. giving a bank loan or going into development, you want to do something that has been proven and been done before, which means to de-risk it. But if you're doing something that's never been done before, the mechanism of development are going to work against you every every day, mm-hmm. and so yeah, you're going to have to fight that fight to to uh, accomplish your vision because 
the whole structure of how development gets done mm-hmm. is to do things that have been proven, i.e. have been done before. Yeah. Right. That's true. But honestly, you know, this building was just sitting here kind of almost mocking anyone who looks at it because yeah. like, what are you going to do with that? It's That's like right. this inevitable question, yeah. right? What's next in, 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 in Memphis? And it, 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 must be, <clears throat> it must be a point of pride for you to know that this project is an inspiring thing that qu- people can quickly point to. But uh, Memphis is accelerating. And um, what other lessons could we draw as a city uh, from this project or other things that I mentioned earlier in the show? Mm. um about what's possible or is it or is it is it enough to say now is a time of possibility in memphis and now we just need to seize on the opportunities i think that um i think your your point about equity is a big deal because mm-hmm. we're at a point now where we can think about that you know mm-hmm. um i don't personally i could be wrong i don't personally believe de- development in memphis is going to be like it was in nashville in terms of how quickly it happened I hope we've, not. We've got some time to yeah. really put some um, put some things in place to make sure that 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 is the case. I mean, you know, even at Concourse, um, whether it be tenants like Church Health or the uh, affordable housing units and the apartments, mm-hmm. or you can just come and go in the galleries for free. Um, mm-hmm. There's free public Wi-Fi. Like you don't have to you don't have to buy something to be here. You can be here and work and be a part of it and. You know, what is that mm-hmm. version, you know, for for development elsewhere? I mean, personally, yeah. one one project I'm really excited about is uh, Central Station. Oh, uh, yeah. Involved peripherally um, McLean Wilson and Kimmons Wilson companies um, doing that. But it opens in just a few weeks and it's going to be a really, really incredible um, yeah. new spot for South Maine. Yeah. Alex Turley is a buddy of mine, so he's been yeah. kind of keeping me in the loop about yeah. that. And uh, absolutely, I, I am uh, really ex- excited for the project, but obviously what that's going to mean to the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But more to come in Memphis. Yep, um, absolutely. Todd, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with me today. Thanks for the invitation. Good conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. Thanks for listening. Champions of the Lost Causes podcast is a production of the OAM Network, available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and at theoamnetwork.com. I'm your host, Marvin Stockwell, produced by Gil Worth, logo and design by the OAM Network, content and social media coaching by Emily Austin. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm on Twitter at at Marvin Stockwell. Keep up with the latest at championsofthelostcauses.com dot org.